All right, well, good morning, everybody. Lord bless you. Um, very interesting cloud cover that we have today. Did you see the sun? Any of you see the sun through the clouds? That was fantastic. Yeah, perfect. You know, I thought, you know, I think that is the kind of thing that's going to happen when the Lord comes back. It's just going to be awe-inspiring, amen? Yeah. All right, um, have a couple of housekeeping things to deal with, and then I'm going to invite Nate to come up here and do the call to the word. Um, this evening at 7 o'clock, our high schoolers and junior hires are going to gather here, um, thoroughly masked and appropriately socially distanced, so that we can have some fellowship and we can do some damage. So um, if you are one, know one, or want to be one, 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock, and Nate and Thorson, Dave Z, Roy Rose, and I'll be sitting in the back observing the mayhem, okay? So that's at 7 tonight. Uh, Tuesday evening, we have a prayer meeting. It is not simply for men. It's for all who feel the call to pray, to pray. He says in Isaiah that I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, who give the Lord no rest day or night till he make Jerusalem the praise over all the earth. That's what we are supposed to be, the watchmen on the wall, giving the Lord no rest. We're supposed to be that pesky two-year-old that is just, you know, mom, 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 until he answers. Jesus said that um, men always ought to pray and not to faint, not to give up. I'm telling you as, as a pastor and as one who sees um, what is happening in our culture and what's coming down the pike, it's time for us to gather together and pray. Okay, Tuesday night from 6.30 to 7.15. It's a whole 45 minutes one day of the week. So call. You can join in on Zoom. You can come down here live. It's all up to you. Come, let us pray together. All right, Wednesday night we're going through Thessalonians. We're in chapter 2, and we're going to talk about the return of Christ because we're at the end of the chapter, and at the end of every chapter in Thessalonians it deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Do you guys feel like something's happening here? I do, I, I do. I sense in my heart that something is happening, and I don't know. Maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's within 10 minutes, I hope, I hope. Um, <clears throat> or maybe it's going to be you know, 10 or 15,000 years, I don't know. But there's that expectancy that we're told to live with at all times of his return. You know? So if I'm wrong, well, I'm in good company. Spurgeon, Moody, uh, Chuck Smith, and bunches and bunches of others, okay? So... 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the end of the chapter. That's where we're at there. Friday, you young adults, you. Um, we've had some, well, I don't know, maybe it wasn't. Natalie could tell you. She probably won't, but she could. We had a talk on marriage. We have marriage talks on, on Fridays, right? We have one at 10 a.m. and one at 5 p.m., depending on your young adult schedule, okay? Um, Sorry, I forgot. You were there too, Philip. Yeah. Okay, so you could ask Philip also. 
Anyway, uh, if you want to know how to have a good marriage, if you want to know how to prepare yourself to get along with one another and really enjoy it, that's what these marriage talks are all about. I don't know. How many of you were totally prepared when you got married? Anybody totally prepared? Yeah? Right. Nobody was prepared for that, right? What's that? No? James Dobson's wife, um, her high school football team um, hadn't won a game in about 10 years. And on the team, this is back when they were playing eight-man football, and one of the players' fathers was the owner of a Ford dealership, and he says, if you'll just win this next game, which was against their, their crosstown rivals, if you'll just win this one game, just this one, I will give every player on the team a brand new car. Okay, a brand new car. Well, those kids were totally motivated, right? So they uh, spent the whole week uh, eating, drinking, breathing, sleeping football. Got up early in the morning for practice, stayed after school late into the night to practice, and they worked out and they lifted weights and they did everything. And then Friday night came and they went out and played their hearts out and they lost 36 to nothing. It's pretty sad. I mean, they didn't even score. Uh, the lesson there is, is that you can't do in one week what you haven't been preparing for all season. And I think that applies to relationships too. There's no reason why we can't prepare our hearts and our minds to go into it with Christian principles and precepts and give you all the advantage in the world to make it through. So that's what the marriage talks are all about on Fridays. Okay, is there anything else, Carly? Men's breakfast, is that next week? Okay, Sam, raise your hand. This is Sam, everybody. Men's breakfast is at his house. They cook up a pretty good... Breakfast, uh, actually, Nita cooks up a really good breakfast. And Kim, and Kim, that's right, she did, she helped, that was great. So, see Sam after the service if you're interested in coming and want to know where he lives. All right, it was good, um, giving testimonies of what God has done in our lives. Anything else, Carly? That's it? Wonderful. All right, Nate, the skate, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Mr. Nate Irby. Celebrating it for the generations to come, 
in the lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made uh, the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he set, uh, gave him uh, two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed with the finger of God. Um, let's go ahead and just bow our hearts before the Lord. Um, dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for these, uh, these written words. Um, Lord, um, may it be to your honor and glory. Uh, would you uh, anoint uh, Pastor D's uh, words, um, giving us uh, an idea of what you really mean. Um, and in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Thanks, bro. We are in Exodus chapter 31, and you guys are already there, correct? We have been uh, journeying through Exodus for quite a while now. Has anybody noticed that by any chance? Yeah, you have. Okay. And I want to thank you for your patience and working it with me, working through it with me. But I want you to understand this. And uh, I'm going to put this down so I can see you guys over here. All right. Sorry, Vinny. It doesn't matter how often you go through a book of the Bible. The real issue is how much of the Bible goes through you. Okay? Um, We are going through scriptures book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, pretty much. And we want you to get the whole counsel of God's word. And there's a lot of things that I could actually skip over and jump into just the good things of each chapter, but some of it is just so rich and so deep that I I can't. I I don't know why, but I just can't. Um, This is a a marvelous book that you have in your possession. It is the only living book on the planet. The word itself says it is rhema. It's live and it's sharp. And it's sharper than a two-edged sword divides things between the spirit and between the flesh. It's the only book able to examine your motives, truly. And it rebukes us for our sins, but yet then it renews us with hope to pick up and to carry on. And it gives us a great, great assurance that everything is going to be all right. Nothing is going to separate you from God's love. And when you get to the end of the Bible, we win. All right? We win. True story. So let's bow our hearts one more time as we get into our section of Scripture. Father, you promise never to leave us nor forsake us. Never to leave us alone. We might feel alone, Lord, but we walk by faith, not by sight, and definitely not by feelings. You are always with us. You stay with us. You minister to us. You touch our lives in ways that no one else can reach. And you alone are able to transform us from what we are naturally to what you want us to be supernaturally. Thank you for your preserving these writings, for giving us such profound information. Thank you for preserving this truth. 
So may we have fresh ears, Lord, and an open heart to hear what the Spirit has to say to us this morning. May our faith be stronger when we leave this place than it was when we entered. And may our love continue to grow. This we pray in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. All right. Now, in verses 12 through 6 through 17 is, is basically more rules about the Sabbath day. We um, have covered this already. Uh, back when we went through chapter 20, we did a pretty extensive study about what the Sabbath is all about. It says, as the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the children of Israel, saying, surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. It's a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. And then verse 17, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Recurring word in that passage is the word Sabbath. 113 verses in the Bible mention the Sabbath. And nine times we're told in, in, in um, Exodus and Leviticus that we are to keep the Sabbath. The term Sabbath is, means simply to rest or to cease from work. And I'm sorry I don't have my slides with me, so um, bear with me. And the historical precedent, of course, is found in verse 17. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Okay, I don't think it wore him out, per se. I think what it was is that he needed to show us that we're not God and we can't keep going on, that we need to rest and refresh. Remember what Jesus said, Sabbath was made for man. Sabbath was made for you. This particular mention was strategically placed at the very end of all the commands to build the tabernacle. You guys remember the tabernacle, right? We've been talking about it for a long time. And, and maybe we forget, but they are still at the foot of the mountain. They haven't even started building this thing yet. And so they're, they're, and you're going to find out that they're totally excited about it. They're really stoked about building this thing. Uh, people are going to give so much that they're going to tell them to stop giving. And the people who are gifted artisans and, remember, Aholiab and um, Bezalel, the, the gifted anointed, Artisans who are going to be overseeing this project, they just want to get onto it and go for it. What tends to happen to you when you're really excited about what you're doing? You don't want to stop, do you? You want to keep on going. Saturday and Sunday rolls around, and, and there you are in your office on your computer or at the desk because you like what you're doing. You love work. 
And they say, you know, man, you really need to take a break. But what are you saying? I love it. This is my break, you know. But sorry, eventually the wheels are going to fall off that cart. Um, The rest of God has to be respected. There's a time for labor for the Lord, and there's a time to rest. And both are a part of his plan for people. How many of you think you really need a rest now, right? Anybody? Anybody need a rest? Okay, you have permission. Today is your day. You can take a rest. All right? Turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, please. Verse 31. This is Jesus. He's speaking here. He has just sent his people out, 70 of them, to go minister into villages. They were told not to take any money with them. Don't take any extra clothes with you. Just go preach the kingdom of God, heal the sick, and cast out demons. And they did that. And when they came back, they were high. They were stoked. They were so, so excited. Especially because the demons were subject to them. They had authority over demons. And Jesus told them, well, you know, before you get too excited about that, don't. Because what you really need to be excited about, the thing that you really should be rejoicing, is that your names are written in his book of life. That's the big deal. That's the big deal. So he takes them in verse 31. He says to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. I think it was just outside Des Moines, Iowa, or somewhere between here and Flagstaff. I don't know. But it was a deserted place, okay? And it says, For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Now, have you ever been so excited about your work that you didn't eat? Yeah, well, me, I, I have, I have. I know, look at me, you think, well, it's been a long time, okay? It's been a long time. But yeah, um, you can get so engrossed in your work and labors that you don't, you don't even take time to eat. Now, Jesus is modeling something here that I think a lot of us rediscovered during the quarantine. How many of you all of a sudden had to slow down because of the quarantine? Anybody? Well, I did, yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden, you find you have a little extra time on your hand to rest. If we don't come apart to rest, then we will certainly fall apart, and then we will be forced to rest. There's an ebb and flow to work, to life, and ministry, in which times of service alternate with times of quietness, and solitude, and prayer, and contemplation. You need to come apart before you fall apart. You know, understand, you know what I mean when I say come apart, right? It means Come apart from your work where you're busy, okay? There you are. This is your busyness. It's all right there. Busy, 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 busy. And then you walk away. You go apart from it. And you spend time between you and the Lord. And, and it could be doing any number of things. It can be doing any number of things. But it really, somehow, some way, should be centered around God and worshiping him. And you can do that here um, but you can do that up in Sedona, believe it or not. Sedona, are you kidding me? Um, Paul Clark, you guys know Paul Clark. He's the 70-year-old guy that has more energy than a two-year-old on a sugar rush. Okay? Uh, he came out one year, and we went up to Sedona. 
And we, we climbed all over the Red Rocks, and we went and saw caves, and we looked at pits, and we looked at rock designs, you know. And I remember him saying distinctly, wow, this is a great Sabbath. It's a great Sabbath. And, and he was right, because he was enjoying God's creation. He was enjoying just being out, seeing these things, doing these things, and it was a total blessing and refreshing to his soul. So what your Sabbath looks like is, is totally up to you, but you need to take one. You guys heard of a, a woman named Dr. Laura Schlesinger? Anybody? Yeah, okay. I used to listen to Dr. Laura all the time, okay? Uh, got some of my best uh, snarky remarks from her. But <laughs> between her and Judge Judy, I don't know which one has the most. But anyway, she suggested, you know, maybe on your Sabbath day is just a day where you disconnect from all media and you just take phone calls, retouch base with other people that you haven't talked to in ages, or write letters or emails, okay? When was the last time you actually got a letter in the mail? You know, mostly it's email and text and things like that, but maybe put that all down and, and do something handwritten for a time. Maybe it's time for you to just go to bed, just sleep all day long. How many of you would like to do that? Yeah. How many of you could never do that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I could. <laughs> Ask my wife. Yeah. The point is, if you don't come apart from the busyness and the rush and the ebb and flow of your life, you'll fall apart. Um, F.B. Meyer says, Amid all our work for God, there should be Sabbath-keeping. The inner rest of the soul. We are by nature full of our own works and schemes and plans. But when the spirit of rest enters us, all of this is altered. Then we are not agents, but instruments. Okay? You're no more an employee of God. You're an instrument of God. We do not work for God, but God works through us. We enter into his rest, and we cease from ourself. Okay, if you want more on that, I, I suggest you go to our archives online and, and look up uh, Exodus chapter 20. But um, you have permission now to sleep through the rest of the teaching, okay? So you can have your Sabbath rest. Now we come to verse 18, which is, is a verse that really grabbed my attention. It says, when he, that's, that's God, had made an end of speaking with him, Moses, on Mount Sinai. He gave Moses two tablets of the testimony. Now, tablets, not like pills, okay? We're talking about stone, things of stone, okay? Tablets of stone written with, and here's the th phrase that really got my attention, the finger of God. That's very poetic, isn't it? The finger of God. It's common to describe God in anthropomorphic terms. That's a big word, meaning we just attribute to God human characteristics like fingers and hands and eyes and ears, even though he is spirit. So he has none of those qualities unless he chooses to manifest himself that way. That's the power of God. How does he do that? I don't know. He's God. That's just the way he rolls. 
he manifests himself, manifests himself in different ways. Sometimes he's in human form in Scripture. Sometimes he is in the form of a cloud. Or sometimes he is in the form of fire. And sometimes he talks through a donkey. All right? Um, no, don't think that. I am not. Never mind. <laughs> but here and four other places in Scripture, the Holy Spirit specifically references God as having fingers. The finger of God. And it's always mentioned in context with something wants us to take especially seriously. Whenever you see the phrase about the finger of God, there's something serious going on that we need to pay attention to. In, in um, Exodus chapter 8, remember the plagues. He's pouring out the plagues on Egypt to get Pharaoh to change his mind. He gets to the first two plagues and the magicians are duplicating them. Not too bright because the plagues are plagues. And when you duplicate a plague, you got twice the amount of a plague, right? So it's just making matters worse. But they get to the third plague, the thing of the flies, where the flies are all over everything and everywhere. Um, and they can't duplicate that one. And then they say to Pharaoh, you know what? We can't do this. This is the finger of God. Now, it's not that they knew Yahweh or Jehovah, they're just attributing whatever is going on here has to do with their God. Okay, so this is the finger of their God that we see here. And again, so what was, what was uh, God trying to get Pharaoh's attention? Let my people go. And what did Pharaoh do? No, I won't. And so every plague got worse than the next and the next, and it was like judgment on the gods that they were worshiping anyway. So the finger of God was trying to get his attention. Now, do you have people in your family that point when they talk? Do you have? All right. My grandfather, I love my grandfather, Deidre, when he was alive. Um, he was a scoundrel. He, he absolutely was. But still, he was our scoundrel, all right, and, and I loved him, and he, he, at one time in his life, he had his index finger of his right hand got stuck in a meat grinder, okay, and, and it bent it, I mean, I can't do it justice, but it bent it, where this whole thing was just bent sideways like that, and when he'd get all riled up, um, and it was easy to get him riled up, by the way, and, and sometimes, yeah, we did it on purpose, um, he would begin jabbing that finger at you, all right? And we start laughing. Why? Well, it looks like a hook. My uncle would say, oh, here comes the hook again. And he's pointing at it, and you go, who are you pointing to? <laughs> who are you pointing at? And we would start laughing, and that didn't really help a whole lot, you know? <laughs> he would get mad. Well, the finger of God, as I said, has been mentioned four times in the Bible. What we just read, what we read in, or what I spoke to you about in Exodus chapter 8, and also in Daniel chapter 5, if you're taking notes. Uh, remember, you guys all remember this. We get the phrase, the writing is on the wall, right? Uh, Je David Jeremiah has a great study on the finger of God as it relates to this great feast that Belshazzar was putting on for a thousand of his lords, if you will. It was just a drunken party, okay? It wasn't just 
a, a, a feast or a, like a state dinner. It was just a wild, licentious, drunken party in this hall that was something like 85 foot wide and 160 foot long. And um, it says all of a sudden, he, well, he brought out all of the, the holy things that had been taken by his father, Nebuchadnezzar. And remember, we talked about these holy things. We're talking about the golden lampstand. We're talking about the table of showbread. We're talking about the altar of, of incense and all of, the, all of the utensils that go along with it, the cups, the, the bowls, and all of those things, which, remember, were all anointed with oil, was to show us how seriously God takes these things as holy items. And he decided to mock God. To, to show that his God, and I think the God was actually named Marmaduke, okay? And isn't that a, a cartoon character, a dog? Yeah, <laughs> whatever. And he was going to show how Marmaduke was greater than this, this odious Hebrew God, so he began drinking out of it, mocking God. And then all of a sudden, that's when <clears throat> the hand appeared. David Jeremiah says the hand was as big as a hippopotamus. Could you imagine? And yeah, it would tend to freak people out. And it wrote those things, you know, mini, mini, tekel, upharsen. Mini, mini, tekel, upharsen. If you translate that, translate that into English, it's money, money, tickles the parson. Okay? Only these people got that? You've been weighed. You have failed. And you're going to be divided. And at that very moment, at that very moment, Cyrus, general, was coming into the city. A city that they thought was totally impregnable. It was walls that were 380 feet high. 30 stories. 30 stories of walls. 85 feet wide. You can have chariot races up there with chariots five across. And they had water that flowed inside the city. They were totally self-sustained. Um, but somebody left one of the gates open underneath the city, and Cyrus had drained the water into a nearby lake and uh, just marched right in. And that very night, Belshazzar met his end. He was dead. Again, it's serious. When God talks about his finger, his finger point out something, he, he means business. It's serious. And then you see in, I think it's in um, Matthew, and I can't remember exactly the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, not Matthew, Luke, Luke chapter 11. Jesus says they're, they're accusing him of casting demons out by the power of Satan, right? Satan casting Satan out. He says, no, that's not possible. What you see is the finger of God. And it's declaring that the kingdom of God has come. So casting the demons out, again, you see, this is serious stuff. Don't take it lightly. And then finally was the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And no finger of God is necessarily mentioned there, but what is Jesus doing with his finger? He's writing, right? And he's writing the sins that are judging all the hypocrites who want to judge this woman. So... All of these things show us that when, when God talks about the finger of God, you need to take it seriously. Understand what he is saying. So, Exodus 31, 18, when he made an end of speaking, 
with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9, and you will see Moses expanding on what happened there. He says, <clears throat> verse 9, Deuteronomy 9, 9. When I went up into the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you, then I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, and I neither ate bread nor drank water. That is a long fast, okay? And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Now pop down to verse 15. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. Notice three times in those three verses, he refers to these tablets that were written with the finger of God as tablets of the covenant. Do you know what a covenant is? Do you know what a covenant is, Elizabeth? This is for you. I, I appreciate you so much. I asked your dad, I tried to get a hold of you so that I could apologize for last week, so I'm going to apologize right now. Yeah, you're a great kid. At a basic level, a covenant's an oath-bound relationship. An oath-bound relationship. When we stood before the minister and exchanged vows to one another, Sherry and I, we were making an oath-bound or oath-bond to one another. And that's what a covenant is all about. It's a little bit stronger than a contract. It is something that can only be broken by something very, very serious. Now, the goal of all divine human covenants is summed up in the words, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. The covenant that God made with us he says, you keep your end of the deal. Keep these ten simple rules. I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. Well, who doesn't want to have God on their side? Who wouldn't want to have God on their side? Well, many people, I know. But the truth is, if you know him, you've seen him, and you've experienced him, you've tasted and seen that he is good. Dude, this sounds like something I would want to get into. Ten Commandments, written by the finger of God. They're just the simple rules of the covenant of an oath-bound relationship with God. Now, back in 1987, Ted Koppel, do you guys remember that name? He used to be the host of uh, Nightline. You know, and he was a very well-respected journalist. Not a Christian, but at least I don't think he was a Christian. He said this when he was doing the commencement speech at a, a I think it was at Rutgers, he said, when God delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and set them at the foot of Mount Sinai, he gave them ten commandments, ten rules to live by, rules that the rest of the world were eventually supposed to live by too. In the place of truth today, we have discovered facts, 
For moral absolutes, we have substituted moral ambiguity. We now communicate with everyone and say absolutely nothing. We have reconstructed the Tower of Babel and it's a television antenna, a thousand voices producing a daily parody of democracy in which everyone's opinion is afforded equal weight regardless of substance or merit. Now let's change today. You know that, right? Not everybody's opinion is afforded equal weight. Uh, we live in now what's called the cancel culture. Okay, if you don't agree with the majority who are on Twitter, then you get tweeted out, all right? Um, regardless of substance or merit. Indeed, it can be argued that opinions of real weight tend to sink with barely a trace in television's ocean of banalities. Okay, this is not good, Elizabeth. He's, he's really dissing the culture. He says, our society finds truth too strong a medicine to digest undiluted. In its purest form, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It's a howling reproach. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the ten suggestions. The commandments are, not were. The sheer brilliance of the Ten Commandments is that they codify in a handful of words acceptable human behavior, not just for then or now, but for all time. Very insightful, I would think. Okay, so it, it, it's good, Elizabeth, to run your life by the Big Ten. Okay, you do that, you're going to be fine. And actually, Jesus boiled it down just to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, and, and that includes Philip, okay? All right. Secular culture tells us that the Ten Commandments are racist, sexist, and oppressive. Um, they're too restrictive. They're just too many rules to please this God. Well, <laughs> I'd like to draw your attention to how our woke politically correct culture has to keep adding rule after rule to enforce rules already made that often contradict themselves. When you jettison simple rules and simple faith, then you gotta make up the rules yourself, right? And it's like playing Calvin Ball. <laughs> Calvin Ball is a game that you play where you never play by the same rule twice. Okay, you make it up as you go. Oxford University's Quality and Diversity Unit tried to accuse people who avoid eye contact with others of racist microaggression. Then it was pointed out to them that such advice might be seen as discriminatory against people with autism who may struggle to look at somebody else in the eye. All right. Oxford University, or I'm sorry, Scripture teaches us to treat everybody as being better than ourselves and that there is no race in God's eyes. So it really simplifies it there, if you can just embrace that and practice that. Scripture also teaches us that God created us male and female. A woke culture says biologically male and biologically female are, are terms that are problematic because they oversimplify the complex subject of gender. We're told the correct usage is to say an individual is assigned or designated male or female at birth. 
and then approach them with their preference of one of 30 different gender-neutral pronouns. Him, her, z, zer, ziz, zeis. It goes on and on and on. The National Union of Students uh, woman campaign banned applause in their meetings. Why? Because it could trigger anxiety among nervous students. Whooping and cheering have also raised concerns. Instead, politically correct students now show support for a speaker with a display of jazz hands. <laughs> I like the 50s better. Fat liberation activists, um, using the word fat to shame people is not acceptable because they might not fit into the conventional beauty standards of our society. And then, of course, anyone with a full figure is allowed to reclaim fat as an empowering identity. See how confusing this is getting? What you have to do is to continue to make rules upon the rules that explain the rules that you don't follow and do follow. And, and you know what? Who gets to follow the rules? I don't know. All I know is that I am on the bottom of the food chain of all this because I am a white, straight, old male. I feel like doing a blog. It's called the high-pitched cry of the irrelevant white male. <laughs> and no one would care. <laughs> God set the standard of judgment for all human interaction with ten simple rules. Ten commandments might seem narrow, but so does every runway in an airport when you're that high up, right? No passenger wants his pilot to miss the narrow runway and land a few yards off in some field or river, or maybe even to a row of houses. Uh, that narrow ribbon of pavement is really the Broadway that leads to a safe, comfortable landing. And so are the Ten Commandments. But yet, even though there are only ten simple rules, they're impossible to keep. Have you noticed that? They are. Maybe, well, maybe you are the exception. Maybe you truly are Mary Poppins' stepchild, practically perfect in every way. And so you've kept all Ten Commandments. But Jesus said, don't misunderstand why I've come. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. I came to accomplish their purpose. I came to fulfill them. Because y'all can't keep them. Matter of fact, you can't even keep one. Think about it. If I had a table up here in front, maybe I should have done this for an object lesson. And I had a silver platter with a silver lid on it and a little post-it note in the front that says, please leave this lid alone. Don't touch. How many of you, honestly speaking, would be tempted to come up and to see what was under the lid? Yeah. And how many of you would look around and make sure no one was looking and then pick it up and look? Right, exactly. <laughs> can't even do one. You can't even handle one rule. How are you going to handle ten? Jesus says, I know that, so I'm coming not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. I'm not seeking to weaken it, but to establish it. Galatians 3 tells us that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. 
and not by keeping the law. A lot of people think, you know, I'm pretty good, right? And maybe you are. And then the law says, well, here's the standard. And then all of a sudden you look at it and you realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Well, that's the purpose. Ten Commandments was a conditional covenant. It showed the standard of righteousness demanding, demanded by the law, but could never impart to the person the power to keep the law. We, 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 we say in our hearts, the law's good, right? It brings peace between neighbors. It brings guidance and direction for my life. But I can't keep it because I am who I am. However, Jesus Christ has come and he has given us the power to keep it. They tried. The Old Testament saints, they tried, but they just couldn't do it. They couldn't handle it for the long haul. And you guys can all identify with that. I mean, after January um, 1, go to your gym, go to the YMCA, and see a lot of people who are trying to keep their resolutions. Go back in May, and you find out that it's not so crowded anymore. Why? You want to, you mean to, but you can't live up to your resolution. Now turn to Hebrews 8. And here is a section of scripture in the New Testament that's actually quoting the Old Testament. In particular, it's quoting Jeremiah 31, 33. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. A covenant? What's a covenant? It's this oral agreement between two parties, right? An oath that you take. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, that was the book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments. Because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and I'll write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Philippians 2.13, and you can check it just to make sure I'm not lying. It is, he works in you both to do and to will of his good pleasure. You've come to Christ. You've become born again, right? Remember what Jesus said? You must be born again okay when you come to that place where you admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior and you invite jesus christ to come in and be the lord of your life you are born again and now you are a new creature in christ that's what it says to in corinthians second corinthians you are a new creature in christ all things have passed away all things have become new all right now the Spirit is working in you, and it says in Philippians 2.13, right? Both to do and to will of his good pleasure. In other words, let me, let me put it to you in, in practical terms. Both to want to do and the power to do what pleases God. In other words, he gives you the want to. That, that was one of the big things that was sticking point, right? When we don't want to obey rules. Why don't you want to obey? I don't want to. 
I don't want to. Even if you wanted to, you're still saying it. You still get that inner two-year-old that's raising its little chubby fist saying, I'll do it myself and I don't want to. Now, all of a sudden, you've got a heart change. You've had a heart transplant. You've been born again and now you want to. Now you want to do those things. And he gives you the power. And it comes, though, it comes at that point of obedience. Let's understand that. There are things that you're asked to do. You really kind of want to do it, but you're not going to do it. And you say, but I know I should do it. I know I should do it. And you say, oh, God, give me the power to do it. And you wait for, like, Tinkerbell to show up and put fairy dust on you. And, oh, I feel good now. I can, I can do this. It doesn't work that way, does it? No. The temptation to be rebellious is standing there until the time comes when you have to make that crucial decision. Will I do it or not? Will I obey or will I disobey? And as soon as you say, I will obey, make that choice. It's a conscience, faith choice, not a feeling choice. And you do it, you obey. You'll be given the power to obey. You're given the power to obey. Now, God's will is internal. In other words, grace puts into us everything that God wants out of us. Okay? Grace, his unmerited favor, puts into us everything that God wants out of us. There's, there's a, an example from the world of nature. It's called a caterpillar. Inside of every caterpillar is everything needed to become what? A butterfly. That's right, Elizabeth. Butterflies are caterpillars that have been transformed. Right? Caterpillars, I don't know what you think about them, but I think you've seen one caterpillar, you've pretty much seen them all. Right? They're not particularly attractive. Some are slimy and they're slow. And a lot of times you find yourself stepping on them, right? Mushing them. But once the caterpillar starts converting and converts into a butterfly, all of a sudden, something new is born. Something old and ugly, something that was rejected, something that deserved maybe nothing more than to be stepped on, now begins to change. Now the process of that change is a little uncomfortable. And it's a little inconvenient. For a while, it looks like things are getting worse rather than better. And that's because something is changing on the inside. The change is never instantaneous. It's always a process. But once the process is over, the cocooning process, and that butterfly breaks through the cocoon, now that thing that used to be grounded can fly. The thing that used to be a parasite now pollinates. Something beautiful has come out of something that was ugly. The seed was there for it, but it just had to wait for development. Now, understand that a butterfly is not a fixed-up caterpillar. All right? It's not a remodeled caterpillar. They didn't go and take some wings and 
you know, glue them to the caterpillar's side and then paint it pink and give it bright red lips. No, it's a caterpillar. But what came out, what was birthed out of the caterpillar is a beautiful, spanking, brand new being. And I quote again, 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. That is the beauty of grace. God's written his law on your heart. He's given you a heart of flesh now, not of stone. And you have not only the power to obey him, but now you get the want to. All right, is that enough for one morning, guys? All right, let's share in communion, and we will pray and then be dismissed. So uh, let's all stand. Go ahead. Father, I come to you now, giving you thanks for your word. Your word is truth. And I thank you, Lord, that it reaches deep into the recesses of our hearts and comforts us, encourages us. Thank you for the, the truth that we are becoming something new. We're something beautiful patterned after the image of your son who was filled with all the characters of the fruit of the spirit who was the most um, self-confident and most encouraging being that ever lived thank you for making us like him as we struggle in these cocoons lord god letting you develop us letting you change us from the inside out we ask that you fill us with patience and perseverance we pray that we would allow your Holy Spirit to do his work within us and not resist him, not to quench him, nor to grieve him, but give him free reign over the ownership of our lives. And I pray, Father, that as we get into your book, may we learn more and more about those two main rules for living to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, thus fulfilling all the law and the prophets and fulfilling the law of Christ. So bless us now, Lord God, as uh, we begin to contemplate these things and receive the elements for our communion. In Jesus' name.
Take a second now and go ahead and open up to your, remember the top heart has the wafer and then underneath that is the juice. If you drop something, let me know and we'll get you a new one. We need a new one over here. Elizabeth, love you more than a bag of hammers. All right, praise the Lord. You have in your hands the emblems of the body and the blood of Christ. You hear this every time we do communion, but it's a needful reminder to you guys. Jesus said, this is my body, which was broken for you. And remember in Hebrews, it tells us that his flesh was the veil that was torn. That's how it was broken. And when the veil was torn, and it's speaking of that veil, that big curtain that was in the tabernacle and the temple, right? That real big thick one that kept people away from the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. Ripped wide open. Now you may go there and receive mercy and grace in any time that you have need. Right? So, with that in mind, Father, thank you for the body of your Son that was broken for us. Thank you for access to you. Thank you, Father, that we can actually come to you in boldness to seek grace, unmerited favor, to seek mercy, not getting what we deserve in our times of need. Thank you. We partake of this now. In remembrance of him, in Jesus' name, amen. Shall we? This is the cup of the new covenant, the oath that he has made for us. This is representative of the blood that was shed so that our sins would be forgiven. If they weren't forgiven, then that means we would have to be accountable for them. But we are not. We can forget about them now. 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, right? So, own it. Confess it. Forget it. That's what this is about. Not to be cavalier, but to be respectful and be thankful for it. Father, we hold before us the emblem of your blood. And thank you that you have taken our sins and put them in a sea of forgetfulness. For as you say, as far as the east is from the west, 
so are you separated us from our sins now. So we do own our, our faults. We do also confess that. But now, Lord, thank you that we no longer have to have false guilt hanging around our necks. We can be free in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Listen carefully. Unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. I think for the sake of time, we'll do the first song. Joy of the Lord.